And then all of a sudden I just cracked. Part of me just died for some reason and everybody realized it too. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. More and more people are becoming aware that there is a mental health crisis among farmers. How do I know that this is such a big deal in the farming community? Because I've lived it. I've watched family struggle with it. I myself have struggled. And our guest this week opens up about his deeply personal struggle with mental illness as a farmer. It took him away from the role that he had embraced growing up on his family's farm. I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. And this week is an intense conversation with Dwayne Brantsma. His parents founded what became probably one of the best-known dairies in Northwest Washington, Edeline Dairy. They started from humble beginnings and were one of the first to go independent and sell their milk directly to the consumer. Being situated close to the Canadian border, they grew a huge following up in Canada as well as down here in the States and eventually supplying milk to folks all over Seattle and beyond uh, down the West Coast. But this week, Duane shares his story growing up as the farm kid taking on a bigger and bigger role until he found that he was in too deep. He shares what was really going on at that time, including how an obsession with food safety and being so hyper-focused on making sure their milk and the food that they were producing was safe that he basically pushed himself over the edge emotionally carrying the burden of ensuring the utmost in food safety for Edeline products. It is an intense conversation, and I welcome you to join me in digging into this difficult topic of mental health and farming, and I share some of my personal story as well. You grew up around producing food like that was your family growing up yes i think i was like 12 years old when we first had a store which was a refrigerator <laughs> and me on two milk cases selling it to people <laughs> that was the beginning of the store yes just old school old school selling yeah. Milk or what What did you all sell? That, that's all we did at first was milk. I mean, when we had our first $100 day, it was <laughs> an incredible achievement. <laughs> so talk about what was the farm at that time? The farm at that time was 80 cows. 80 cows. Yeah, milking in a flat barn. Yeah. And then, um, then we put up a bigger barn at uh, 400 cows. And uh, at about that time things were kind of went south of the market too. So it was a difficult deal. Yeah. And paying the bills was very difficult. And I just remember a lot, a lot of stress. Yeah, for sure. Yes. And um, how old were you at that time? I was a little bit older. Yeah. 14, 15 yep. in there. Enough to um, remember that uh, like one of the big turnarounds was when the Canadian market uh, really took off with cross-border shoppers. So people coming down to buy the milk and Cheese, whatever else eggs, from your dairy. Butter, yes. That was about the age I was too. I remember when we went through some really brutal times on my family's farm. And that's formative, you know, in, in watching how, in experiencing that, because it's right when you're kind of just old enough to start grasping like, I don't know what's going to happen next. And can we, will we be able to pay our bills and stuff like that? And watching how your parents handle the stress, you know? Yes. And that's probably the biggest thing is, is the change in the business is the things that you don't really see that are going to happen. Mm -hmm. And they start happening where not only does your parents have to be good at what they did, which my dad was a great cow person. Mm-hmm. But then you have to become a good business person mm -hmm. and you have to be a marketer. Hmm. And, and with the uh, milk, 
it's a very difficult item to sell yeah because it's got a shelf life that's not very long so you can't, it's not like you can freeze it and keep it and yeah. sell it so there's a lot of stress involved all the way across now a lot of the milk that's produced here in the state goes to Dairy Gold, the cooperative, and there's some other cooperatives. There are very few of these independent dairies that are selling their, even though there's getting to be more of them around here. Um, was there anybody else doing that at that time? And what did that take? Like, it's one thing to be Dairy Gold and they have facilities and all that. They take the milk in, they get it ready, they bottle it, whatever. You, you didn't have any of that starting out, right? No, we didn't. Um, we just had a very small plant. I remember the route. We had a purple type van with a <laughs> refrigeration unit on top. And I remember driving that during the summer. And we had this little route that went through Bellingham, you know, out up towards Mount Baker and back yeah. again. And, and also took that van to Seattle once a week and filled it up with product to sell mm. in the store. And the thing would be just squatted down and I'd be with my grandfather and I wasn't old enough to drive then or anything, but yeah, he, he just passed time. He taught me yeah. to listen to the Mariners. <laughs> um, you know, I think it was Do just, you still listen to the Mariners. It's tougher. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Never been into it as much myself, maybe, yeah. uh, maybe in the background in the barn kind of thing, but. Yeah, I can't just sit down and listen to a game. Yeah, and see, <laughs> and, too that, <laughs> and that's I think you know um, when you listen to things and you're not watching things, then your imagination yeah. takes hold too, where you are imagining the plays and you know going through all that, yeah. and you know the game so well, you know what the players look like and things like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, we'd sit in rush hour traffic, and he, <laughs> we'd be listening to the Mariner game, and he'd always stop for cherries somewhere, and. He'd shoot cherry pits out the window between his fingers at, you know, passing cars and stuff to entertain himself. So. <laughs> oh, and that's a good point, though, that you bring up as far as having to go get other product to have in your store. And that's, I think, something that a lot of people, even I, I don't really usually think about. Like, hey, if you have a store, why don't you just sell the stuff that you produce? But you have to have enough stuff there for people to justify coming to your store. Yes. Right? Most of the time, they just aren't going to come for one just item milk or yes. whatever. You, I mean, you got to have something that complements that. Yeah. And uh, we tried, you know, with cheese, bread, eggs, butter, and sold a lot of that. Yeah. Sold so much of that, uh, especially in the 80s with the Canadian traffic. We yeah. would sell, uh, I mean, every week we would take probably in... 15,000 pounds of cheese that we would sell every week. And uh, it was just unbelievable. We would take a semi-load of milk to Blaine every day. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was crazy. So many people, because after this era, many years after this, you know, I went to school up in Canada. So many people up there knew about your family's farm. Yeah. And when that, they thought of farming and dairy down here, that's what they would think of. Yes. And so many people just called it the dairy. <laughs> oh, we're going to go to the dairy. Yeah. And yeah. so they cross the border and get their ice cream and everything. It was just always funny to me that that's what it was called, the dairy. It had to be fun at that time in, in the moments when things are going well and you're seeing that kind of growth and people are really responding to what you're doing. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of fun. And, um, just keeping work fun was yeah. the biggest thing. If I could have a good time, play some pranks and do things <laughs> like that, just keeping things light. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and after a while, as the business grows, things aren't as light or fun anymore. Yeah. It takes a lot more of a serious tone. Mm -hmm. and well, it probably gets to be more and more at stake. Yes. Right. And all of a sudden you realize that too. Uh, maybe as you grow older, and I don't know about wiser, but maybe it's yeah. easier not to think that way, you know, that there's more at stake. So what was that like as things grew and you took on more and more responsibility? What would you do out of high school and how did you kind of go from being the, you know, the farm kid to working on the farm? Yeah, I guess 
out of high school, I did a quite a bit of milking the cows and uh, putting in crops, things like that. And the uh, exact opposite probably of my dad who loved cows and mm-hmm. I really didn't love cows at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then um, I slowly uh, transferred into uh, running the store as it grew more and more and then running uh, routes and things continued to grow. And um, as things grew, we grew with our customers, I would say, you know, uh, it's a really hard thing because being in the position we were, you're not allowed to buy milk out of, from dairy gold or out of the pool. Mm -hmm. So you have to, try to adjust for customer growth because they don't want to be stagnant either. Right. So that was the hard part. And then we grew. And the hard thing is, is, okay, my dad's specialty is cows. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably not his thing is the milk plant. Yeah. At all. Where you have to, what, bring it in, it's stored, and then, what, pasteurized and bottled and homogenized and all that kind of stuff. Yes, and then lots to it that probably people don't usually think about oh there is i mean and it's kind of that way with any business behind the scenes you don't realize how much there is to the balancing act of trying to balance what you take in with what you get put out there's winter storms there's (laughs) you know there's all sorts of things that play into it there's holidays and things like that and um so you know Sometimes you wonder it, with the business, like the founding fathers per se, if my, it would be my dad and mom, mm-hmm. but his expertise being cows. Now, should he, would it be easier for him to stay with the cow part and not to try to transform himself into the business part? I mean, the, the heart, the nuts and bolts that, you know, mm-hmm. behind the scenes that he doesn't like. Yeah. You know, so. And then I like that part of it, that end of it, and you know, making new customers and meeting new people and things like that. So as we grew, I grew up taking more responsibilities, um, plant management, the route distribution. And we were at that time running about 6 million pounds of milk per month that we were wow. distributing. Yeah. It's a lot of mouths fed. Yeah, it is. You know? you know, I mean, that's what you guys were doing is feeding this community, certainly, and quite a bit beyond. How far and wide were your products going at that point? Obviously, uh, a lot going north <laughs> to Canada, too, I guess. I should yeah, imagine. it was going north to Canada, but that really, uh, when their dollar started to, you know, hit 30, 35%, that their dollar was worth 65 cents American, mm-hmm. then uh, traffic slowed a lot, <laughs> you know, as you can understand. Yeah. And we got more into um, using distributors for our milk. Mm-hmm. And we got a large distributor in South Seattle mm. who supplied Starbucks with their milk. Mm. And as Starbucks grew, we had to grow. Yeah. And as you can understand, Starbucks grew to be quite large. <laughs> and um, then uh, at one point, we were supplying Western Washington and um, into the Portland market too for Starbucks. And that was probably you know ten semis of milk a week. Wow! Just for them. <laughs> <laughs> so it tells you how much coffee, because that's just the milk and dairy products going into the coffee. <laughs> that's right. You know, and that's just Starbucks. I mean, you think. I don't. I mean, you want to talk about something that was good for the dairy industry? Yeah, that the would coffee. be Seattle coffee thing fad trend, but it's not because it's outlived being just a fad. Right? Yeah, it's worldwide. Yeah, so it's been great actually for the dairy industry. Yeah, but I know that's when for you it's got more and more stressful. Oh yeah, I mean, as, I mean, it's a lot of pressure. Then all of a sudden you're dealing with a big company like Starbucks, and I'm sure what they needed would change and how to keep pace with that. And you had probably a whole team to manage back here. I mean, what, what were you doing 
to keep everything going. <laughs> yeah, point. keeping everything going was uh, pretty difficult, and um, and I didn't help myself. Mm. I think uh, when you're younger, you kind of you know can take on the world a little bit yeah. more. Yeah. And um, we uh, we went through growing pains, and then some things happened for me personally where. Um, we let a plant manager go, mm. didn't replace them because mm. I thought I could do that too. Mm. And then uh, the guy that was working underneath me left for another job, didn't replace him because mm. I could do that too. And problem piling was, on, yep, piling on. Yeah, problem was I couldn't. And, um, and it wasn't fun anymore either. And then all of a sudden I just cracked. Part of me just died for some reason for some reason with the food industry i got in my head that somebody was going to like drink our milk and die and sue us and we would cease to be and i would lose so it was like a paranoia yeah that something terrible was going to happen and yeah that you wouldn't be able to prevent it yeah you know i mean even and, though your milk was totally healthy and everything was yeah totally fine yeah i mean we you know would do uh counts on our milk you know for yeah. um uh you know anything that's in there or whatever you know and if a count was i mean even within the range of what it was safe i would i'd have this freak out factor mm. and it started to control me and um and i was just dying inside and everybody realized it too mm. but not knowing really how to handle it was the biggest was the biggest thing and and uh my folks and my sisters didn't really know what to do and what ended up happening was they hired a uh, interventionist actually really yeah which was it was really a strange ordeal for me like one of these people that comes in and helps with like an alcoholic or something? Yeah, a drug and alcohol type thing. Yeah. And <laughs> But that wasn't the case with you. <laughs> it wasn't the case for me because, I mean, in all honesty, I mean, despite the fact that my dad was a smoker and he doesn't smoke anymore, mm -hmm. I mean, as a kid, I could have smoked a cigarette anytime I wanted, you yeah. know? I've never <laughs> smoked a cigarette in my life, actually, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And as far as alcohol, I mean, most of my friends and stuff know that I'm just not into it, you yeah. know? Uh, that just wasn't my thing you know i i strunk twice in my life the second time i was i was both times i was 19 years old and the second time <laughs> i said to myself you know what i just don't want alcohol being the way i have fun yeah i want to have yeah. fun on my own yeah terms you know and just didn't do it again so your vice wasn't any of those things your vice was stress and taking on too much yeah yeah Essentially, yeah. If I could put words in your mouth, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, my kids would say too that my vice was, I mean, kind of like Edeling Dairy. I mean, it was my um, the way people looked at me. Hmm. That's how I associated it. You know, so that's true though. I mean, you, you mentioned that. That's true for so many people in farming. You know, oh. because it is their whole life. It's their not identity. just you don't clock in and clock out. You're often people live on the farm or near the farm. It's their identity. It's their family name on the farm. It's their family legacy and heritage and all these things piled on. That is so different than somebody just going to a job and coming home and like I'm going to leave work at home, which can be like a mentally healthy thing to do. Right? Oh yes, that is totally a healthy thing to do. But, but farming, it's like, you can't do that. No, farming, it's, it's a constant. It's just, it's there all the time. And, and it's kind of all you think about too. And, um, you know, going through um, the deal with an interventionist, you know, deal where he comes out and I'm not knowing what's going on. I, I don't even know who this guy is. And, um, and I, kind of talk about some stuff and then I say, you know, sometime I'd like to find out what kind of cracked in me or what, what, you know, find the source of this. Yeah. And he goes, well, you can find out. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're leaving today. You have no choice. You'll find out today. <sighs> yeah. Whoa. Uh-huh. That. What was going through your mind at that point? 
a lot of anger. I was yeah. just ticked off. Um, at who? Um, at the time, that guy, I really didn't like him. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, he was probably prepared for that, though. Yeah, he was. I mean, you know, and, and, and the hard thing is, is, you know, that stigma with depression, anxiety, slash whatever you want to call it, because it um, it is a stigma that, you know, I don't, I was actually at the time, I was, I was, I admitted I had a problem, mm-hmm. you know, I was going to a doctor and I was prescribed medication mm-hmm. and I was seeing a counselor as well mm-hmm. and continue to do that to this day. I mean, yeah. and that was, you know, 13, 14 years ago that this happened, but, yeah. um, and I really still don't like that guy, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I didn't go that day and I ended up actually going to a clinic in, um, Houston and, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're just, they just weren't set up for, they were a drug alcohol type place, you know, so. And what was, what's that like even like traveling there? Like I, I've thought about that before. Like what if I were in that kind of situation? Yeah. Because honestly, I've, I mean, truth be told, I've had my rough patches too. I haven't talked about it too much here on the podcast, but times when, yeah, maybe I could have used an <laughs> I don't know if it was quite there, but I was really struggling with some things bigger than me and had to also get to that point where I admitted to myself that I had a problem mm-hmm. and I needed to seek help and work through some things. But I can't imagine like getting on an airplane and yeah, and to it, me, was, that would just like put me even farther over the edge yeah, or something. And it really did. It really, yeah. really did. It, yeah. it sent me reeling to a darker place yet. Yeah. And and through that, I mean, being at Houston, it really didn't do me much good. Mm. Um, the, the coolest thing there that if I have to reflect on was this guy named Vince, right? His name was Vincent. He's mm. from the Bronx. Yeah. And he was just like your Italian dude that you would totally, <laughs> you would totally think that this yeah, guy just fit the stereotype. Oh, totally, man. You know, and he uh, he was rough, tough. You know, and we kind of hit it off. And understand that I'm the forty year old, and I'm with these guys that are late teens, early twenties. You know, and I'm just kind of in a way filling a role in their life almost, mm. where you know they're just unloading on me you know and at night we'd get together at the gazebo and they'd all be smoking their cigarettes you know and we'd just be sitting there bsing you know how to escape from that place (laughs) (laughs) right you know just fun stuff you know and me and that guy got pretty close we played a few pranks on people (laughs) that we weren't supposed to do but um and then um the final night i was there right it's uh we do this happy crappy thing where you tell about your happy part during your mm-hmm. day and your crappy part of the day. And it comes to his turn, right? And we all kind of have fun with this, but you know, it can be serious too as well, yeah. you yeah. know, and he talks about a happy part of his day. And then he talks about crappy part and he looks at me and he goes, the crappiest part of my day was finding out he's leaving tomorrow. And this Vincent from the Bronx is tearing up and crying. And I was just like stunned. Wow. Yeah, this was a two-week thing that I was there. But I mean, you know, I don't know what happened to him or, yeah. you know, what all happened. But, you know, I mean, that, that, that's the thing I look back on. And I remember that. And that just, uh, you know, for me, it's kind of an emotional thing almost that yeah. I had an impact on somebody's life just for, you know, a two-week period. Yeah. You know, that this tough guy that, you know, everybody walked around because they were so scared of him, <laughs> yeah. teared up and started crying, wow. you know. So that, that was the coolest part. But then it was coming home and, you know, I was, I was bitter. I was lonely. Um, and through it all, I, I, uh, I ended up leaving and starting another business. But um, I did not and could not function properly. And I, it was, it's, it's been a road. Yeah. And in that road, I see people that need help. Yeah. And 
and and even asking them to get help, they won't do it because it, it's a stigma. Yeah, I, you you talk about that, just the stigma of you know even admitting you have a problem with some sort of mental health thing that you're uh, I'm mentally ill. Like that's a ter- even me saying that here on this podcast. I, yeah. Because exactly. I have battled mental illness. Am I mentally ill at this moment? I probably wouldn't be considered. Mm-hmm. But it's like if you're sick with something and then you get treated and you know it's still an issue and I have to stay on top of it. And if I don't, I will be mentally ill. Yes. But there is still in our society, like if you say that and if you own that, it's kind of like, oh, you're one of the crazies then. Yes. You know, that's or- like a mm, not to be trusted you're yeah. kind of weird. Yeah, just pull it together. Yeah. Why why can't you? Yeah. And I'm encouraged that, you know, I think more and more these conversations are coming up in our society and culture now. People are talking about it. But I think we've got a long ways to go. Well, I think we got a long ways to go, especially in the um farming community. I don't I don't care where I'm not just saying dairy community, I'm saying farming. You know, I mean, it's just not a thing in the United States where it's the number one occupation for suicide rate and depression mm. is farming. Then you go Australia, it's the number one thing. You go the United Kingdom, it's the number one occupation for that. I mean, you know, we can't just push this aside like it's not there because mm-hmm. it is there. And like we talked about before, people's identity is tied in and 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 six i mean not success in a bad way but just being able to provide for your family and mm-hmm. if and if you can't do that and you're just you you don't see yourself as worthwhile mm-hmm. where yeah if you're if that much of you is connected to that farm mm-hmm. whatever it is for whatever farmer and then when things don't go well you feel you know, it's that's a incredibly deeply personal thing then yeah, it's it is. like I am a failure. It's not the farm or the business or something else. In reality, it should be, but it's like I internalized that, mm-hmm. and I failed. Yes, and, and it, so many people go through that. Yes, and and it like you said, you know, it can be stuff beyond your control, but that does not. Your brain doesn't fathom that. You that doesn't even enter the picture. You have convinced yourself that you are a failure. And, and you don't know what to do, you know, because a lot of times in the farming community has changed so much too. It used to be the harder you worked, you could maybe make it work. Yeah. You make it come out, you know, but there's so many, farming has become so big, much bigger now. It's not about how hard you work. And that's the hardest part. Yeah, making the right decisions and being strategic and planning and yes, taking the, risks and that can cut you both ways right? mm-hmm. so there's there's so much to it you know and then you know sometimes i mean and the hard part too as i see farmers leave you know what they loved okay and a lot of times beyond their control you know uh, and it's what they love you know that's the hardest thing to almost imagine is that love they have you know it's they work a ton of hours, but what they love is the freedom too that's involved where they can take an hour or two and go watch their son or daughter play a game of basketball or soccer Mm -hmm. or something and then come home and work. Yeah. You know, but that freedom. So then I see these farmers that for whatever reason have to go to a job that is confining them to a certain hour period. (laughs) That adjustment yeah. is so hard. Yeah. And plus they're down. Yeah. And feeling like I had to leave my farm because I failed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it carries over. I don't care what anybody says. I mean, for me too, I mean, and I'm still trying to process at 55, Yeah, <laughs> you know, that I have some worthwhile that I can add to somebody's business. And that it is so hard for me. And then you throw in, I think, too, the personal part, your, cl- your family members are the ones that get hurt the most. Because mm-hmm. for me, I could put up a front, mm, right? and my front was humor. 
mm-hmm. I could joke away something pretty easily. Yeah. You know, and not go to that raw spot <laughs> because I didn't, you know, and then I'd come home and I'd huddle up by myself and watch TV. And just kind of marinate in the pain and the stress. Mm-hmm. I, I feel this because I did the same thing. I mean, I was in the radio business at the same time, but, you know, I grew up on a farm. I yeah. learned some of those same stress ways on the farm. I know my dad has struggled with this stuff too. And it, it does, it just it builds and builds. And it's this, you know, festering thing. Yeah, that's just always there. And it, it gnaws at you. You've got a, a stomach that's nauseous all the time, mm-hmm. you know, just, and, and for me, I lost so many friends through it, mm. either by me just pushing people away because I didn't think they wanted to be around me. Who'd want to be around me? Mm. I go to basketball games. And I would purposely almost sit my wife and I by ourselves yep. because I didn't think anybody would want to sit by me. So you were in some ways a victim of the stigma in your own mind too. Yeah, they're very true. Right? Yep. Like, well, I'm struggling with ment- my mental health, so you know, I must be one of the, you know, a crazy person or something. People wouldn't want to be yeah, exactly. hanging out with me. And I'm sure you would rather have a broken leg where you could say, sign my cast, this is broken. Exactly. That is the thing about <laughs> mental health. It is just another health issue, but it's your mind. It's not visible. It's mm-hmm. not tangible. And it's totally misunderstood and loaded with stigma versus all these other health issues that are treatable, yeah. that you, you just go to the doctor. Like you say, you break your leg, you go to the doctor, they cast you up, maybe you need surgery, you know? Mm-hmm. Even, you know, diabetes, which I compare, it's not exactly the same, but it's more, it's similar to a chronic mental health thing because it's also a chronic disease yes. that can be managed. Yep. But if you don't, it can kill you. Same thing. That's exactly right. Right? Totally right. And I mean, the thing is, is, I'm finally where I've got people saying to my wife, hey, I see that old Dwayne again, you mm. know, which is, you know, encouraging to hear. But at the same token, my immediate family, my wife included, you know, what she's gone through. I mean, yeah, I, I still beat myself up about, you know, I mean, she's got a full-time job, a great job. And, you know, she's taking the bull by the horns more or less because of my absence of, you know, being there. Mm -hmm. And uh, even as a father with my last two kids, I was a different father than I was on my first three kids. Mm. And it's something I feel bad about, you know? Yeah. But I'm sure with you too, I mean, the people closest to you, they're the ones that, you know, take the hardest hit i i can say the same thing yeah and i've said a lot of things and done a lot of things and been things that i really regret and it's Mm -hmm. hard then when the same thing you're fighting is just reinforced by that sense of failure exactly it creates yet another vicious cycle it's a catch it's a total catch-22 and and to be able to heal you have to move on from that but the disease itself makes it hard to do. Yes. And the more it repeats itself, which it just continually yeah. does, and the way of thinking in your mind, it, it has to change. And, you know, um, and for farmers, I think that's a hard thing too, because a lot of times, a lot of stuff they do is, is by themselves. Mm. So if you're by yourself, you're not a lot of times patting yourself on the back. Yeah, you know, and if things aren't going good, it's a good you're point. Beating yourself up, yeah, more, you know, because uh, I just, you know, you're, you're your own worst enemy most of the time. You know, I know guys that are just like up all the time, and I think, give me ten percent of that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Where does all that energy come from? That positivity. Yes, I hear that. Yeah. Oh, to to think though about the. The things that you go through and the things that you say and the things you do to be able to leave that behind and to be able to, uh, it's, that's awesome to hear that people are saying that to you, like seeing some of that yes. old Dwayne back. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, and it's even, you know, for me, it's uh, reaching out. And I mean, for me, it's, it's always funny because I tell people I'm kind of a shy person. And that's pretty funny to a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, they just don't look at me that way. But yeah. um, I am, you know, kind of, you know, one of those people that once you get to know me, I don't come across that way. But it's that in between there of getting to know somebody, you know, and feeling comfortable with them. And, but um, so I got to reach out now and I've been reaching out a little more to friends of the past, mm-hmm. you know, and reigniting some friendships. And um, so, it, you know, it's a pit though. It, when you're in that dark place and I, I just, you know, I can see it in other people and uh I, it if you're in that place is it, you need to get help and you know it's always preached at me you can't you know do anything until you help yourself yeah and it doesn't have to be this way i think a lot of people mm-hmm. including myself at times is like well this is just the way my life's going to be now yes it's, this is it it's always yes. going to be this way and it sucks yeah, that's and right. You just give up. Yep. I mean, and it's like, no, there, there are things you can, it's not going to be easy. Mm-mm. There's not a snap your fingers and you're better kind of thing. No. But life can be still be good. It, it can be definitely better. And, and for me too, I mean, I just like, uh, just counted everything out. I mean, I just kind of like, why, why does my family even like me anymore? Hmm. Uh, and the, the thing is too, is finding a counselor or somebody and, and always the amazing thing to me is I always think, you know, counselors, they don't have that bad. I mean, you know, they just sit there and they just listen to you <laughs> as you pour out your guts. And then two weeks later, you do the same thing again, <laughs> but no, but in all seriousness, you got to find a counselor that works too. Yeah. And and to take that step, and yeah. have faith in that step because they they know they're the professionals. Your doctor knows, or finding a doctor that knows, and and getting the help you need because I mean, I remember, the, remember my first time sitting in a counselor's <laughs> office, mm-hmm. having no idea what to expect, having waited way too long to take that step. Yeah. You know, so I was just like wrapped up in stress and anxiety and depression. And it was like I was, it wasn't like I was ready to weep, maybe, but I was just like shaking or something. Yeah, like, yeah. this is what, what's going to happen here. And I, I, I can't even explain it. It was an in, intense experience. And then once I went through, it's like, okay, this is, this is going to be okay. Of course, then a few sessions later, my counselor started pushing me harder. And that was like, oh, you're pushing me towards things that I don't, <laughs> not ready to deal with yet. You know? Yeah, I know. And, and that's, the, that's the hardest part is, I mean, until you deal with some of those things, you're not really going to get better either. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I, you got to do the homework that they give you, right? Yeah, you do. You do. It really sucks. But, <laughs> but yeah, you do have to do that. And, you know, for me too, it was uh, finding uh, people that fit the mold for a counselor. I've gone, I've had three different counselors just for different reasons, you know, where one uh, decided to uh, go into a field where they have their own podcast and they reach people doing that and mm-hmm. things like that. And, and another one moved away. And, and I just remember that for me, I've had three counselors and they've all been women Hmm. and i've met with also three guys Mm -hmm. for you know to be counselors and it just didn't click didn't click at all and but so you have to have where you click with somebody too and don't be scared to say i just didn't feel comfortable you know yeah i I do i feel bad when i've heard people they go to counseling "Ah, i didn't really get much out of it this is pointless i shouldn't be doing this no maybe you just need to find somebody that's a better fit for you yeah. And the thing is, is don't give up either. Yeah. You know, yeah, totally. I mean, because that's the easy thing to do. Yeah. It really is, especially when you're, you know, not feeling well anyway. It's interesting. You talk about seeing it in other people. And I was, I've been thinking about this lately how mental illness can be contagious. Mm hmm. 
And, and, That's interesting. In, this, yeah. in this time of COVID and, you know, everybody focused on contagion and pandemic and all of that, so can mental health through a variety of different ways. And I know in some cases that's part of my story because I know when I was struggling, I was around people who were also, and that wasn't helping. No, it doesn't. You know, they were setting out patterns that weren't helpful for me and not that I necessarily blame anything about me on them, but it is, it can be contagious. Someone who is continually, you know, dropping interpersonal bombs mm-hmm. in, you know, the the team meetings or work stuff or family stuff that constantly causes that can then cause other people to be stressed and upset. And then they're doing things to other people. You know, it's, it's yeah. scary when you see how that the dominoes start to fall when when it happens. Oh you yeah, totally. And and the hard part is too is I mean you know, if we feel sorry for ourselves, well, then if we find somebody else that is feeling sorry for themselves, yeah, you know, wow. I mean, you guys together, you just, hey, you know, we just cry on each other's shoulders. And yeah. somehow that's supposed to make us feel better. But it could but, be a race to the bottom too. Yes, exactly. Why do you think mental illness is such a hard thing in the farming community? I mean, we've talked about a lot of the things that probably push farmers to struggle mm-hmm. with their mental health, but why is it that nobody wants to talk about it or deal with it? I think if with farmers especially, um, and I, I don't know if I want to use a, a pride factor in that, it's probably a better word, but um, you know, that's probably the last thing you want to admit to. Uh, you know, I mean, you're not going to, talk to your fellow farmer about i just i can't snap out of this yeah i've been down for three months or four months and i can't get out of it you're just not going to go there with somebody else because you think they've got it all together but you know what (laughs) they don't that's a good point too I'm, i'm serious they really don't if you open yourself up i i i just feel that you open up something and maybe it maybe not but in a large part so many people actually can understand that pit Mm -hmm. and you know maybe not as low as maybe as you feel but a lot of people have been down there and you know but i do think that it is definitely a pride thing and and you're taught you're you are taught to man up (laughs) come on man up yeah. What's your problem? Just deal with it. Yeah. Snap out of it. Get your you know what together. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I was a youth counselor, leader, whatever you want to call it, you know, I mean, just um, at a church. Hmm. And uh, one of the gals from our youth group when she was in college called me and told me how bad she was doing. I, I, I mean, I regret to this day. Is that something I said to her was, well, can't you just snap out of it? I had no idea. Mm. That's how naive I was about it, mm-hmm. you know? And um, that's why I just think, you know, if you're, if you're in that area, you got to reflect and, and take the time to at least think to yourself, I mean, I got to go to a better place. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a very hard step for a lot of people. What was it like for you leaving the family farm and not being a part of that anymore? That was devastating. Absolutely devastating. Yeah. I mean, everything was wrapped up there. And um, I, I mean, friendships, for, I mean, with employees, with uh, uh, customers that you had for, you know, a long time, you know, there's just so much was there that that loss i mean it still it, it still hurts you know mm. i mean that you know because and once again you know it's an identity mm-hmm. you know and it was something that you took pride in and everything else you know so it, you know that loss that wasn't there anymore uh was probably one of the hardest things for me and you eventually then worked into like you said, you started your own business. 
and I was still somewhat connected with this world of farming and producing food. Yeah, yeah. Started a recycling industry or a business. Yeah, bringing some sustainability to some of the products used in the agricultural world and beyond. Yeah. Can I explain explain what that was all about, how, how that came about? Yeah, I just uh, that came about from um, having a friend that was in Oregon at the time that contacted me and they were doing recycling of plastic, farm plastic, uh, whether it be uh, bailing twine to drip tape to um, the pesticide containers mm -hmm. that uh, the farmers use. And um, yeah, they were doing that and they were doing fairly well at it. And I got involved with it and uh, it's, started out just fine mm -hmm. i had an employee or two and uh shipping a lot of plastic and that normally would go to a landfill yeah so and pl a plastic waste has become such a big focus in recent years it's important to do something with this other than send it to a landfill right exactly you know and that's just it i mean that's where if i wasn't taking it i mean that's where it was going there was mm -hmm. no doubt about that you know, and that got into taking that in nursery pots and nursery trays, you know, from different companies and it kept growing. And then the market just completely died. And um, that's been in the news a bit, particularly in this past year or so, even worse with, you know, first the trade wars, I guess, or whatever, the, the <laughs> trade deal yeah. negotiating back and forth with China and stuff over the past couple of years. And now with a pandemic probably that much worse or that yeah. market is basically just frozen up right yeah that market has almost kind of almost like disappeared <sighs> so i've been working at getting as much out of here as i can and whether i continue with this is kind of up in the air yeah where ideally i'd like to probably get a part-time job <laughs> somewhere and yeah. then and you know, kind of yeah. continue in this and keep it alive you know but that uh you know that realization too is okay did i just fail at something else <laughs> right right you know thankfully hopefully for your sake you can very much see where it, it it's forces far out of your control yes. <laughs> global forces <laughs> exactly that are causing that to happen yeah to you exactly i mean but it, it's but what happens to all even just from a sustainability perspective or an environmental perspective it sucks because of you know trade stuff and Oh, absolutely. Uh, all these things going on, then what, what's that? Is more plastic going into the landfill now that yeah. basically the recycling market has yeah, dried much, up? Yeah, much, much, much more plastic <sighs> is going into the landfills just because uh, a lot, there's a lot of uh, cities, towns that have uh, suspended recycling even. Really? Yeah, and there's a lot of them that just take certain types of plastic now and the rest goes into the landfill. Mm. You know, um, even for me, I mean, the the top year that I shipped out of here was just shy of a million pounds mm. of product. So, you know, you take that, I mean, a million pounds is, you know, going into a landfill now. Mm. It's a shame. Yeah, it that is actually, happen. it is. And, uh, you know, we have to think of a, a way somehow to take care of our own waste mm -hmm. versus shipping it to other countries absolutely you know kind of like out of sight out of mind type deal yeah. but really it's not so yeah. we have a ways to go there yeah something that we as a society need to kind of get real on yeah I think. we do there's got to be something that uh can be done that incentivizes uh you know the recycling of it because you know i can't point my finger and say hey you know they won't bring their stuff here and uh, nor do I want them to point their finger at me and saying, well, why don't you pick it up? You know, <laughs> because neither one of us wants to do that because right. there's no market and you know, <laughs> what's the difference, you know, mm -hmm. um, if, you know, so it, there's gotta be some incentive, you know, for, I think all in all, everybody kind of wants to do the right thing. It seems that way to me. Cause I mean, when I offer the services of picking up plastic to people, they would do it, you know, but when the market died and, you know, for me to have them bring it here, that's, I mean, 
and I understand totally, you know, it becomes a financial game for everybody. Yeah. So, um, you know, it all slows up, but yeah, I mean, it was bunker tarps. It was hay bale wrap. It was bunker twine, you know, uh, drip tape, nursery pots, all that kind of stuff that, you know, uh, was being collected. So it's, uh, and I think uh, other countries, it seems like like Europe and things like that have a better handle on it than we do in some instances. Yeah, yeah I think there's probably a lot of things that we can learn to reduce our amount of plastic waste produced in food from start to finish. Yeah, I think people are becoming more and more aware of that too, even right down to the bags that they use at the store kind of thing. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's changed a lot. Well, thanks for sharing your whole story. We've covered a lot of stuff, and this is very near and dear to my heart. And it's always hard for me to talk about it on my own. So mm -hmm. I appreciate that you're willing to <laughs> kind of open yourself up and talk about it to give me kind of the okay that I can talk about some of my journey with mental health stuff as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, it's a huge thing. And since I've been through what I've been through, I'm so passionate about sharing with other people that there is hope and there are things that you can do and this is an important thing but it's going to be okay exactly you there are people who want to help you and there are things that you can do yeah and they can help you i mean absolutely i mean i you know it's been a road i gotta say but you know it is it is dark it is bleak sometimes but there there is hope out there definitely <laughs> This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. If you're struggling with your mental health, reach out, contact a, a, a counselor, go to your, talk with your doctor about it. Lots of great resources online as well. I know how hard it can be to admit it to yourself that you're struggling and to take that first step to ask for help. But like Dwayne, I can speak from experience to say there is hope there is help. Life can be better. And I want to encourage you if you are facing that. I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast, where we are uncovering the real life stories of farmers and the people who produce food, the people who prepare our food here in Washington State. So glad that you've joined us, that you support us. Please follow us on social media, on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, check out our website, realfoodrealpeople.org. Check us out on YouTube as well, where you can see a full video of this week's episode. And my conversation with Dwayne is posted there. And make sure to follow and support our sponsors, Save Family Farming and Dairy Farmers of Washington. The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at savefamilyfarming.org and by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.